and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Coming up, Gabby Logan turns the midlife crisis into a midlife celebration with her podcast, The Midpoint. Alex Michaelidis takes us to a chilling scene in Cambridge with his thriller, The Maidens. Food writer extraordinaire Grace Dent brings us tales of her own culinary adventures in her memoir, Hungry. And Claire McIntosh has your high-speed thriller fix in her novel, Hostage. But before all that, here's Maria. Uh, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. I'm After I speak to you, Graham, I'm going to my mum's 94th birthday lunch. I think she's booked Rage Against the Machine or something to play. Of course, yes, that's, that's one of her favourites. It brings, her kind it, of thing. It brings back so many memories. <laughs> that's it. Um, oh, Jean, happy birthday to Jean. That's, that's amazing. it, it's Jean. Um, and, you know, I was listening to your show earlier, which is strange for me, um, and I was thinking... Really, do you wash your duvets before you put them on? Was it duvets you were talking about? And if you buy something, you wash it first. Ah, you see, now my mum would say that, but I, being something of a slattern and a slovenly creature, think, oh, this is the only time it'll ever be ironed beautifully. (laughs) I get to put it on straight from the packet. Well, the good thing is, though, if you wash it straight from the packet oh, yes. and then put it in the dryer, nothing really happens to it. It kind of comes out like it was in the packet. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, I, see, I don't have a dryer. And I found that out when I washed my winter duvet, half of my winter duvet, and then you're meant to put it in a tumble dryer to fluff the feathers out again. My feathers have remained unfluffed in a clump. And also, it must have been just sat in your living room for about a month trying to dry it. Out in the sunshine, Graham. It's been 30 degrees down south. Oh, cool. Listen to you, Italian housewife. (laughs) (laughs) Flapping it on a balcony. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Flapping it on the the balcony. The Dolmio cooking in a a little saucepan. Yes, and what sort of... How how am I speaking? I want to get your Italian accent now. Oh, that's hard. No, you'd no, you'd be you'd be the um, the English lady who'd moved to the town some years ago. Oh, have I moved for a romance that has failed yes. miserably? Yes, and then the waiter left you. <laughs> the waiter. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's Graham. always the waiter. I like it's to think all- it was an Italian poet. Oh, yes, he could be that too. I threw up my life for the Italian poet and look where it got me, cleaning my duvet on a balcony in a bedsit. Uh, but I uh, know it's true though you should wash your duvet and you need to wash towels and tea towels also. Uh, well, towels and tea towels don't work unless you wash them first yes that's true that's true I love our, our uh, household tips did you watch any of the kicky ball no oh. I, I mean listeners full disclosure I will be lying to Gabby Logan later and telling her I did watch it I was going to say Gabby Logan is going to have a tough time talking to you <laughs> when she tries to explain who people are what they did you didn't see and I thought you'd have watched a little bit for research knowing that Gabby Logan was coming on Graham I kept an eye on the score so I know <laughs> I know it was nil nil you must have nodded off because I know I did well no it sounds like it sounds like a check, checking the score was you know, the the thing to do. It the sounds like highlight. It was, a, it was a, li- a little boring. That's what I hear. Yeah. It yeah. got interesting towards the last 10 minutes. You feel if there was another half an hour tacked on the end, the players would be dead, obviously. But yeah. um, it would have been a bit more exciting because they just spent the whole time up and down. I know that it, is what football yeah. is, but nobody seemed to have any attack. Scotland, perhaps I'm giving it to them just slightly. Well, I'll be asking Gabby that very good question later. And also asking her why they don't make it like tennis and just they've got to keep going till somebody wins. Well, when it gets, you know, towards the finals, I think we have extra time and then we have the the dreaded penalties, which one either loves or hates. I find it very exciting. They could have done with that last night, frankly. I think with penalty shootouts, once they've discovered penalty shootouts and you realise how exciting they are... They should just do that. Yes, why bother with the whole stupid 90-minute boring (laughs) bit of running around a field? You and I should be running the FA, Graham. We'd turn that around in moments. The World Cup could be done in about two and a half days. (laughs) Should we write that as a, a, a proposal to the FA? Yes. Dear FA, Graham and I feel that... Oh, and also, the yeah. other thing... Oh, yeah. Thing, oh, now is, he's running. Well, yes. He's on a roll. No, we need, we need to rethink the Olympics because obviously Japan are having trouble. We need to come up with a very speedy, nice thing with the Olympics. I may maybe Zoom. turn it into bingo or a raffle. We just give out the gold medals with a raffle system oh. and we do it all at the opening ceremonies. Or do it by Zoom and you get each competitor... <laughs> So talk through, I'm running up now to the high bar, which is called the high jump, and I'm jumping over, oh, and my foot has just clipped it. Well, you get bronze, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, a Zoom sort of Olympics. Yeah, yeah.
socially distanced. Lovely. <laughs> uh, have you got letters? I have. It's odd, isn't it? Every week I just seem to have letters. Uh, well, it's so handy because we will be, we will be doing... Graham's Guide. Would you like the first letter? Okay. Yes. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Graham and Maria, my 81-year-old mum lives in Spain. Over the past year, she's reconnected with a man she dated in school aged 16. They both lost their partners two years ago. And whilst they haven't met up due to lockdown, they're planning to finally meet in three weeks' time. But my mum is worried about the physical process of a new relationship. Dad was the only man she was ever intimate with. And while she's keen to explore, she's very anxious about the mechanics due to their respective ages. I'm a gay man who finds it difficult to offer advice to my mum on this matter. Can you offer any help? And that is from Robert in Annick. I absolutely love this letter, Graham, largely because Robert has got that sort of relationship with his mum where she can talk to him about these things. I think that's brilliant. And I sympathise that Robert is unable to help with the mechanics of a perhaps straight relationship. But what I would like you to say to your mum, Robert, in Annick, is, look, she's had children, she's had you. The mechanics remain the same, exactly the same. You know, maybe the urgency is a little dulled. But what is lovely is that... This chap had a relationship with your mum when they were both 16. He will be looking at her with 16-year-old eyes. She will not have changed and hopefully she will be looking at him with the same 16-year-old eyes. You know, obviously bits will have sagged and changed shape, etc., etc. But they will remember that feeling they had when they were 16, which is wonderful. Now, I will say there are all sorts of pharmaceuticals and creams and so on that are available if you're a little bit older and you might need them. And I would imagine that this gentleman is only too aware of that. And tell your mum, Robert Inanik, he's going to be feeling exactly the same sense of trepidation. This is not a one-way street here. You will both be nervous. It will be lovely and you will find your way slowly and surely. There is no urgency. You've got the rest of your lives. I would say, Robert Inanik, Good luck to your mum and to her 16-year-old former boyfriend, and I hope it goes well. What do you think, Graham? Well, I agree with you. I, I One, I hope it goes well. But two, I think, I mean, I know the race he won, so there is a slight sense of urgency. But, uh, but, <laughs> but, but there, is, there is time. There is time. And, uh, and I think, you know, if, if what's great is that Robert's mother obviously isn't that shy in that she's able to talk to her son about this. So I'm sure she'll be able to talk to this man about it as well. And, you know, they'll discuss whatever worries they have, whatever issues either of them might have, you know, with older bodies and all of that. Yes. So I... I, I mean, they... it is very difficult if you've only ever been with one man. I don't know about the the gentleman in this particular occasion, but for Robert's mum, she was only ever with one man. So it's it's all very different. Oh, they're all the same. Oh, well, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> the mechanics are the same, perhaps just a bit lower these days, everything. Yeah, I just think, uh, you know... <laughs> everything and, and, headed south. And, and the nice thing is, as you... Uh, actually, I hadn't thought of that, the, the rather sweet romantic idea of them looking at their 16 year old selves I mean there's also the possibility that will just be depressing when they meet up and go oh you know because it's like looking in a mirror thinking but if you look like that I must look oh but they found each other again there's something about sort of unrequited um, love and unfinished business that is rather kind of splendid and a bit Disney-esque about this story and I really hope it goes oh you know they could hate each other within minutes because of course as you get older you get very set in your ways <laughs> and when you're 16 you're very malleable and easily told what to do. So, um, you know, it, at the but moment, it's in that very romantic stage. Yes, and I think it's great that they're both up for this and not just kind of a, a, kind of a walk down memory lane. They want to go behind the bike shed at the bottom of memory lane, which is great. <laughs> they, I, I think... they may well get stuck behind the bike shed. You know what it's like <laughs> at that age, Graham? <laughs> Not I would... yet. Not <laughs> yet. Oh, oh, yes, that's true. Um, I would say to Robert as well, make sure the will is all sorted in your favour, Robert, before oh, yes. any of this takes place. <laughs> the cynic in me. No, I'm yeah. romantic and then I'm cynical because I'm a yeah. realist. Oh, and you know what the other thing is? Oh, yes. It, because now we are in the time of the World Wide Web. 
all the information is out there. You know, Robert's mother lives in Spain, so obviously she must have some sort of modern communication. She must have the web if she's talking to people. So uh, get on there, because I bet you there are lots of people who've been in the situation who are, you know, giving advice online. There are pretty forums for older people and their sex lives. You know, it's all out there. So I'm sure she can be reassured or just, you know, you can avoid some uh, problems that you didn't see coming um, by, you know, checking (laughs) things out. This will test um, what our older listenership is like the responses to this problem Graham I'm hoping yes. that I people hope are telling us about trapezes and <laughs> um, all manner of dress ups and <laughs> that still go on right until the 90s when I, when I open the text it'll just go Ugh. <laughs> oh, stop it <laughs> uh, okay Janet Bedfordshire says Robert I think time doesn't change anything I'd give the same advice as I was given oh here we go and would give to someone younger take your time Get to know each other again, and slowly, time will bring assurance, confidence, and everything will be more natural. Thank you, Janet, for that nice, appropriate for 10.45 advice. Um, (laughs) Pauline from Edinburgh. Advice for Robert's mother. Dutch courage. (laughs) No, that's a very bad idea. That's a very bad idea. Uh, An anonymous texter says, There are concerns with any age, so as long as she's open and honest about it with her new fella, I'm sure they'll both have a swell time. All right. Uh, Paul and Peckham, As we all know, Graham and Maria, we're all brought to our mothers by a stork. There are no mechanics. Oh, Paul and Peckham. Uh, I think... I think at 81 she understands there's there's more to it than storks. And Russell and Portsmouth says, Robert sounds like a lovely chap. His mom should visit her doctor or GP to go through any physical concern she has about her body. Talking with a medical professional will put her mind at ease. That is very sensible, <laughs> practical, and can I just say obvious advice that we didn't think of. Uh, that is very good. Virgin Radio. Okay, uh, another pro- problem. Problem yes. numero uh, duo. <laughs> Who is it? Uno, due, due. <clears throat> I think that's problem, problem numero uno. You don't know what the second one is. Shush. Dear Graham and Maria, I was with my ex-girlfriend for five years until we split amicably a few weeks ago. Brackets, due to differences in life plans. Close brackets. We live together, so I'm staying with a friend for a bit while we figure out our housing situations. And we're just starting to talk about splitting up our belongings. The only thing I care about, really, is our gorgeous little terrier cross, Betty, who we adopted together two years ago. Whilst I was the one that paid for the adoption fees, the vet's bills and monthly food bills, I'm a key worker and have been out of the house much more than my ex has. And I'm sad to admit that Betty has become more attached to her than me. Do I even consider putting up a fight to keep the dog that I paid for or accept that I need to move on from not one, but two sad partings here? Oh, and that is from George in Arundel. George in Arundel, I'm sorry that you split up, but it's great that you have split up amicably. I think this is really the way to do it when you, you know, you have got differences in life plans. Somebody wants to settle down, somebody isn't ready to do that. So, but you do have little Betty. Now, you know, when people split up who have children, they don't say, oh, well, see you then, have a good life. They share the care of, and I know lots of people who share doggy care. And it's good because, as you say, you are a key worker, so you wouldn't be at home all day for Betty, but you could have her on your days off. I I think it is too sad for you to have two partings. You know, it's great that you're on good terms with your girlfriend, but um, I would say just talk about, you know, doggy doggy share, doggy day share, um, because you don't want to say goodbye to Betty forever, and it's a perfectly doable thing. Um, and I'm sure, if as you say, it's also amicable, your your girlfriend will be amenable to this idea because Betty can have 
two lots of love and you can give Betty two lots of love uh, and you can stay friends with your ex. Graham, what do you think? Well, I think the important thing is don't turn this into, I'm with you, don't turn this into a fight of anything of kind of like I demand to see Betty three days a week. I think if you're just there when actually your ex-girlfriend is having a bit of problem or she's working or she's, you know, whatever, you've got to go, oh, I'll have Betty and then it's a nice thing. It's just, you know, Betty's delighted to see you and you're delighted to see Betty and it, it doesn't become I think if you try to regiment this or turn it into, you know, I'll have her two weekends a month, then it's suddenly, yeah, that's, you know, as any parent knows who's gone through a divorce, it, that becomes incredibly fraught and difficult and full of tension. And people are always trying to push it one way or the other to kind of uh, manipulate and uh, sort of power struggles and all those sorts of things. So just keep it amicable, keep it very loose. The good thing about Betty is, you know, Betty will be happy where, you know, Betty will be happy if you, if she sat on George's lap. Betty will be sat, uh, happy if she sat with uh, the girlfriend. So, you know, Betty's fine. You're not going to confuse Betty or, you know, Betty's not going to be out of sorts and kind of it'll all be weird. Betty will be delighted to see either of you. Yes. So, but yeah. George is sort of saying, you know, do I have to move on? Um, as if, like, he's never going to see Betty again. And and you're right, you know, don't make it into I have her this night, you have her. You know, both couple, both people in the couple will have other things to do, will have things that they need to attend, functions, etc., work, work stuffs. And so you can, you know, instead of getting a dog sitter, as you might well do, yeah. or a dog walker, that's what you do. And, and then you'll stay friends with your ex as well, which seems absolutely the way it should be. And as you say, splitting up your albums, you have the Pink Floyd, I'll have, you know, Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> I've got an obsession about Rage really Against the Machine. really have, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you can't do that with Betty, but you can still see her, George, in Arundel. And, you know, well done for keeping it good-natured when you're splitting. Well, Five years is a long just say, time. Let's just say so far. So far, because oh, you know, Graham, well, no, you're no, such no, a because, cynic. no, but I just think, I think don't like that's what I'm saying. Don't turn Betty into a kind of furry football. You know, just I think <laughs> you, you may not. You know, you image. guys, you guys may not want to see each other as much as you, you know. Right now, it's all amicable and da 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 da. But you know, once one of you starts dating someone else, it may become a bit difficult. So uh, play it by ear. I'd say don't. That's what I say. Don't regiment this. Don't make it a, a rigid sort of joint custody thing no. because but neither who knows do you need to say you know never see Betty again yes because then that's another way of saying it's not amicable because you know I never want to see Betty or you again okay you know that yeah don't do that that would be bad yeah from, from what George says, when he says two sad partings here, he sounds like the injured party in this relationship. Um, you know, they say that they, that they have different different aspects of your life plans. So two sad partings are not necessary. Um, good luck getting over one sad parting, but Betty will still give you joy when and if you're allowed to see her. Yeah, George. well, and also who's paying Betty's food bills now? That's what I <laughs> Betty sat there. Betty sat there with a bib on and a knife and fork, going, "Hello, where's George?" It's all very well you split up, but I don't appear to have any food in my bowl. Uh, George, and I need George. a new collar. This one is worn out. It's horrible. It's loose now that I've lost all this weight. <laughs> Poor Betty. Uh, Tim says, "Let your partner take her. You can't look after her anyway." Okay, I mean, George was saying that he's a key worker, so it'd be hard for him to have a dog full time. But, you know, shift work means that you have a lot of time when other people have no time. Anyway, Elaine said, Peterborough, if you're absolutely certain that Betty will be cared for and loved, then as tragic, tragic as it is, say farewell. If you're a key worker, would having Betty not be a challenge in itself? Have her for visits or when your ex-partner's on holiday and you can make arrangements to look after her. Remember the happy times. Well, no, Elaine... That you're kind of saying he can see Betty because I mean I think that's what we were saying that you you see Betty when the girlfriend can't look after Betty I think that's the idea isn't it uh, Neil in Glasgow once George is back on the singles market and trying to plan dates etc this dog is going to be the last thing on his mind <laughs> nothing less charming than a guy on a first date chatting about split custody of a dog in brackets I assume oh Neil's been there has he has he been there you are right <laughs> No one wants to hear about that on a first date. Uh, Christine's in Newmarket. Betty needs to see both parties. Oh, okay. 
Betty needs to see both parties. Set up a rota so they still see the dog maybe every other weekend. Or get yourself a puppy. No! Don't add to the problem. Don't don't make it more complicated. No. One, Betty's fine. Betty will do. George doesn't need a puppy. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. It is time to meet my first guest of the day. Uh, she is a former rhythmic gymnast. Uh, amazingly uh, popular and successful television presenter and not only that she now has uh, a podcast called The Midpoint it's in its second season and it too is hugely successful Uh, Gabby Logan hello Hi, Graham. Good morning. It's actually the third season. I mean, I'm amazed, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's the thing. You, uh, you are very busy at the moment, presumably. I am. I'm entrenched in the Euros, um, which is only a week old, but I feel like I've been doing it for about four months already. <laughs> and when it, when it comes to you know, presenting those shows, how much preparation do you have to do? Or are you just a kind of football mad person and you know it all anyway? Oh, no, you have to do. I mean, because, you know, a lot of the teams that you're talking about you don't follow myopically through the year so um but you so I wasn't completely au fait with all of the Slovakians who lined up against Sweden yesterday and then of course you have to go through the phonetics of their pronunciations oh, for their don't, names because don't. I don't I don't want to turn up on Slovakian television mispronouncing you know how we kind of laugh at other countries mispronouncing yeah. our names I don't want to be that person on their on their equivalent of the of the tonight show you know kind of on the one show rather kind of going um oh look at this girl she can't say this name so yeah you have all that to do and but it's fun research you know yes Mother, I, on your vision there are some there are some people I just never say their name. I just, I just I gotta think, I don't, I've not confident. I've been told how to say it. It's written phonetically. I've just, I'm not confident. Are there some, are there some footballers you just don't comment on, even if they do something amazing? Well, you'll probably notice if you ever hear a commentator, he'll say the left back. Oh, he's such the big guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the centre half's having a wonderful game. He has a name. Let's try and go for it. When I first started out, I was at Sky and I decided I'd just try and do things with gusto and conviction. (laughs) And if you say if you say a name with enough, you know, conviction, I think the audience is quite happy with that. It's when you it's when you ponder. It's when you get to the second syllable and you start doubting yourself. So that's me. That's me. Tell me. Uh, so last night must be quite nerve-wracking. Were you kind of glad in the end it was a draw so you didn't have to be partisan well, in any way? To be honest, I'm Welsh, Graham, right? So I'm uh, I'm thrilled with how Wales are doing. I'm married to a Scotsman, but I was born in England. So I've, I'm, I'm properly British. You know, I've got all these different kind of... Actually, uh, there's a bit of Irish in me as well, but uh, sadly Ireland aren't at the Euros this time. Yeah. So, um, so I enjoyed last night, actually, in a different way. Um, and I felt it was a good result for Scotland because they worked and played really hard and England will feel, you know, angry and aggrieved because I think England went into it thinking that they could they could win this quite comfortably. So, um, yeah, it was probably, it wasn't a great game, Graham. It wasn't a brilliant football yes, match. Yes, it doesn't but... sound like I missed much. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was an occasion, I think that's, and I mean, there's probably still about, 40,000 Scots wandering around in kilts somewhere in kind of central London right now as we speak. Yeah, wondering if it's over yet. (laughs) (laughs) What what was the score? (laughs) Hey, but listen, we're not here to talk about football. We're here to talk about your podcast, The Midpoint, which is available wherever people get their podcasts. So uh, what prompted this idea? Did you have a kind of a midlife problem, a midlife crisis? What happened to you? (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't so much a problem or a crisis. It was more a realisation of I was 46 at the time and I suddenly had that, I had a visual kind of eureka moment where, oh gosh, yeah, you, you are ageing, you know, because inside you're doing all this stuff, you have lots of energy. Your kids, I've got twins who are 15 and they remind me that I'm getting old by the, you know, the things that I say apparently just aren't very, you know, cute. And uh, obviously my music and my taste in many things apparently. Um, so that's one factor. And then there's all these other things where you start thinking, well, should I be, should I be aware of what's going on in my body and what's going to happen to me and and then I thought I'll, I'll do something about have a chat with a few people I know who are similar age and and then I never did anything about it because I was busy and then lockdown happened I thought right I'm gonna just get on with this and I wanted to speak to people I want to speak to men and women that was important to me it was I didn't want it to just be about menopause I wanted it to be about what we how we feel about ourselves and because I think 40 and 50 and 60 even is so different to how it was 20 30 years ago you know and what people are doing with their lives so um so yes yeah, so these conversations just started the first one I did was John Bishop and the reason not just because he's a he's a good mate and I knew he'd be a good talker he 
he didn't earn a penny from comedy till he was 40. And I love the idea of doing something radically different in your midlife. You know, it's what he wanted to do, but he was selling pharmaceutical drugs before that. So, um, so yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. And everybody who's been on has had not some kind of epiphany, but they've all got something interesting to say about this period of their lives. Well, it's also an interesting thing. I remember turning 50 and thinking, oh, this is it, really. I should start packing my bags. <laughs> and then you realise, oh, hang on. <laughs> There's an awful lot of life on the other yeah. side of 50. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you had a lot. I mean, you've had five decades, but there's still a big chunk left if you're lucky. Yeah, and you want to live it as best you can and be as healthy and well as you can. Well, I certainly, you know, feel I'm, I'm going to be living a long time that I'd like to, to do it in the best way I can. I've got a lot of relatives who live to 105 so far. You've gone over one of them to 105. So if I follow that genetic pattern, <laughs> you know, um, wow. I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got a while to go. So, um, I mean, I might not be so lucky, um, but they were all... Euros 2060. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, move out the chair. I'm coming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I was really, really kind of keen to to explore that. And people that are doing really interesting things in their 60s and 70s is is great as well. Because the, the Economic and Social Research Council says that middle-aged is, wait for it, 38 to 58, which, I mean, that really shocked people in their kind of early 40s who don't think of themselves as middle-aged. But I'm... Try being 58. <laughs> I'm not yeah. even middle-aged anymore. <laughs> I've decided to take the top um, kind of barrier away, actually, Graham, because I had Ruby Wax on this series. I, I heard um, her, yeah. Yeah, and she's in her late 60s, so she didn't actually officially tell me that. But um, I have to know I, I wasn't is. going to ask, but I'm glad you told me. It saves me, it saves me Googling. <laughs> and I heard the one, so this season, uh, you, I, Ruby Wax and Gareth Thomas, they're out already, right? Yes, and then this week, Alexandra Shulman, former editor of Vogue, um, is the next episode. I've spoken to Penny Lancaster. I had a surprisingly, I mean, really interesting, candid chat with Penny Lancaster the other day, who will come into this series. And the reason I wanted to speak to Penny was because I don't know if you know this, she's now a special constable yes. in the city of London. Please, yeah, at 50, <laughs> and while being married to one of the world's biggest rock stars, which I just, you know, is such a wonderful kind of juxtaposition but also she was so honest about what she's going through physically and described a domestic scene where she started throwing chicken pies at the wall and Rod had to take the kids out of the room <laughs> and she was kind of I don't know what it was I was full of anxiety you know and and that happens to a lot of women when they go through you know menopause and menopause um, symptoms and so when I don't know whether it's chatting to people on zoom as I've been forced to do because of lockdown but people seem to really be very candid about what's happening to them in a way that I'm pretty sure 20 years ago I don't think people would have felt as comfortable because I think we all had a, a kind of well you just said there you turned 15 you thought now what I was told Graham when I was at, at one of my first television jobs the boss told me I wouldn't be on screen after 28 <laughs> so wow. I was, yeah he, he, put the, he put the mark down really low so um yeah I think a lot of women in our industry probably thought their careers would be over in their in their 40s thankfully that's not the case <laughs> Uh, thankfully it's not uh, the midpoint is Gabby's <laughs> podcast it's available wherever you get podcasts one of the things you do on the podcast which I think is really interesting you're not just talking about, to the celebrity mm. uh, about middle age you then invite an expert on some thing that affects people in middle age and then the yeah. two of you go at it with the expert uh, so yeah. talk to us about some of the, the people you've had yeah, that, that part of it is is really fascinating, actually, because it's interesting to see the guest get so engaged. And mm. so on Gareth Thomas's episode, we had this wonderful woman, Frances Edmonds, who's uh, written this book called Repotting Your Life, which is all about how you can get stuck kind of in middle age and, and you just get into patterns of things which aren't quite healthy for you. But instead of making huge, dramatic, you know, midlife crisis type decisions, it could be just a little bit of manoeuvring that you need. And um, and so and and how to make those changes, which I think really resonates with people and um, and to keep growing and keep flourishing. And and so she was she was great. And then I've had relationship experts, um, one of whom told Richard Bacon kind of to go away and write a list of five things he'd like to do with his wife. I don't know what your, how squeamish your listeners are, but um, <laughs> five things, intimate things, he was, because it was to improve his, uh, his, his relationship there. Or not, not just Richard Bacon, by the way, anybody. Uh, okay. So she was, so yeah, yeah, sorry. He, Richard, Richard didn't <laughs> had, had have he, a Had he been complaining? <laughs> 
well he was you know saying i've been with my wife for so long and you know he was kind of saying richard's so candid isn't he he's like how are you expected to kind of like feel the same about somebody after 20 odd years um which is kind of which is a genuine you know thing yeah. for people isn't it and and so we had relationships we've had um we've had even a um a business expert you know a lot of people in lockdown are, are going okay i've got this idea and i i'm i'm 42 if i don't make this business work now you know and so um, a friend of mine who's a who's a really successful ceo kind of came on and gave some really good advice and all kinds of areas like hormone doctors uh, you know um fitness experts so it's been it's been that part of it i mean to be honest graham it's completely self-serving i just get all this free advice it's amazing and the hormone <laughs> thing i'm interested in the hormone thing is the hormone thing just for women or can men benefit from no men or? men as well you know and understanding what's going on because you know I, I think a lot of men don't realize that their own hormones are changing dramatically in midlife as well not dramatically that's probably over the top they're, they're changing whereas women's change dramatically men's uh, don't kind of fall off a cliff they just drops you know in, in, in kind of in a much more gentle way however there are yeah. things that you can do to kind of offset that so the, what you're eating how you're training what kind of you know exercise you should be doing all those kind of things it is also that weird thing i think as you get older realize you know because i think when you're young things happen to your body and then you fix it you know you get yeah. over that or you do something yeah. and change it at 58 you realize no this is it <laughs> my bad back is my my bad back. I'm I'm now living with this for the rest yeah. of my life. Managing it, you know, and and do you know what? I and, and the more I'm doing this, actually, the more I think actually. 20 year olds should be listening to this podcast because they do so much more prevention <laughs> if they they'd be like right i am gonna eat my greens and i am gonna look after my core because you know i'm always saying to my kids if you do this but of course young people don't want to hear people like me telling them that do they? No. because they you know because i didn't when i was their age but it is so much of it is about you know kind of managing and prevention funny enough i read an article this just this morning about andy murray who's one of my kind of all-time sporting heroes and and he was talking to the interviewer about how suddenly he said i had this problem with my groin he went and no explanation he said it just and as i'm reading i'm thinking there is an explanation andy <laughs> you're now 34 <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to start happening to your body more and more but i won't tell him graham because i think I, he wants he'll, he'll, he'll figure it out he's a smart guy um, <laughs> yeah. but gareth thomas i love your chat with gareth thomas there's something about him i just find intriguing because he's such a sort of gentle, you know, he, he paints himself as this kind of gormless giant kind of stumbling through life. And of course, that isn't really who he is at all. He's quite, no. you know, yeah, he's very astute and, and also seems addicted to drama. His life is so dramatic. <laughs> and yet he's, he, he, I mean, he's one of the great anecdote tellers. You know, I, I work with him doing a show during the Six Nations. And in our production meeting, where we're supposed to be going through our script and looking at the items we're talking about, about 90% of it is one of his dramas, you know, an anecdote of something that's happened in the, either the last week or something he's remembered from 10 years before. And he's, <laughs> and he's just, he's so fascinating. As you say, he does project himself as somebody that this, what, what's happened? Well, you don't get to have, you know, 100 caps for Wales and you don't get to kind of have the broadcasting career and everything else if it's just all by accident. You know, there is, he is very clever, but he gives himself absolutely no credit at all in that respect because he, you know, he didn't have a big formal education. He didn't go to a big top school like a lot of people he's come across in his sporting career on the way so his his kind of naivety about that and innocence I think he's totally genuine and when you hear him talk about you know the things he's dealt with in the last few years in the middle of his life and how he's uh, how he's done that I'm never I never cease to be amazed by him I yeah really that, book, that book Stronger has some really shocking <laughs> moments yeah. in it yeah, yeah. Uh, very quickly we're nearly out of time uh, could you save me some time who's going to win uh, the Euros <laughs> Absolutely. Um, at the moment, um, I would say France or Italy, Graham. Oh. So come back to me if neither of those win, because I'm fairly okay. sure. I want, I want my yeah. money back. I want my money yeah. back if, if <laughs> one of those doesn't win. And the midpoint, the midpoint is the podcast and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Gabby, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. And you too, Graham. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. All right. Take care of yourself, Gabby. Uh, it's time for my second guest of the day. This man, his first novel broke records, being the first UK debut to go straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. He's back with his second novel, a brilliant twisty-turny thriller called The Maidens. His name is Alex Michaelides and he should be there now. Hello, Alex. Hello, Graham. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Because it's one thing to have, you know, a, a successful novel and then there's The Silent Patient. So uh, what, what was it like coming up with novel number two? Was there a lot of kind of publishers sniffing around, kind of going, how's it going? <laughs> it was, I did feel a bit of pressure. You know, it was a really weird, um, different experience because when I wrote the first book, I was in a kind of low place creatively. I felt like I had a kind of failed career as a screenwriter. 
And um, I didn't even have an agent. I'd been dropped my, my last agent at that point. So I wrote the first book, The Silent Patient, purely for myself, just as a an exercise, really, to see if I could do it. Um, and then the success of it did take me back slightly. Um, but, you know, all you can do, as you, as you know yourself, I'm sure, is you just try and write something to please yourself and try and shut out all the voices around you, which is what I tried to do with The Maidens. So this begins with uh, Mariana. She's a group therapist and uh, her niece's friend gets killed. Am I right? That is all correct, yes. Yes, that's right, yes. yeah. And now Cambridge is kind of mostly, it's mostly set in Cambridge. And you, what did you study in Cambridge? I studied English Lit. Oh, oh okay, and now you're back. You're back. <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea, am I right in thinking the idea for this book uh, didn't come from Cambridge, it came from uh, a community you worked in in North London, is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so I, I came to therapy as a patient because I was quite messed up. Um, you know, so when I was a teenager, I was quite anxious and depressed, I think. And so I had like 10 years of individual therapy. And then I, um, I really got into it. So I started studying it. And um, then I worked in a secure unit for teenagers for a couple of years in North London. And I realized, you know, then probably that, um, that I was too selfish to be a therapist, to be honest with you. But um, I think I also realized that I was a writer because I was having all these experiences and I was wanting to go away and write about them. And I found it really inspiring. And so it ended up inspiring both the, uh, the silent patient and the maidens. Yeah. Because the maidens, I mean, the maidens of the title are this kind of strange, and it just this, I mean, it, it sounds really plausible. Reading the book, you kind of think, yes, that does happen. Because these charismatic professors do become almost cult-like. Yeah, totally. You know, something. I think something really strange happens to us in groups, and that was my experience in group therapy is that we tend to kind of regress a little bit and become a bit like children. And we make the group leader into our, uh, you know, into our father, kind of. And you just have to look through politics throughout history to see that often these fathers can be completely crazy men. Um, and there's something about the way we put our authority and trust in them that I thought was really fascinating. So I tried to transpose it from a, a group therapy setting to a kind of a Cambridge setting with a professor. And it, it interests me that your background is screenwriting, because obviously I think plotting a novel, or maybe you disagree, I think plotting a novel is a very different thing than a, than a film. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably a better novelist than I was a screenwriter. You know, I, I, is it a polite way of putting it is to say I had a, a somewhat checkered career. I'd say it was fairly disastrous. I've made um, three films and each one was worse than the last. So I'm probably the right person to ask about Not your fault. Not well, your fault. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually think it's, it is different, you know, and I think what really surprised me was realising that inside a novel, you can go inside someone's head and you can slow down time and you can go backwards and forwards in time and, or you can go for a walk with a character. All of these things that I found very difficult to do in a screenplay, you know, to access a kind of internal depth. And so, yeah, it is a different thing. But then I also think, and I'm sure you all agree, that most writers are influenced by film these days anyway, you know. Um, I like that you uh, are a big Agatha Christie fan. You you credit yeah, Agatha, yeah. Agatha. Do you do that thing? Because I'm interested. Because apparently she did a thing where she would write a book and then at the end decide who did it. Decide who was the least, <laughs> who, was the, who was the most unlikely person It should go with that. Did you, you know do what? that? I've seen, I've seen that in her notebooks and it's so hilarious because often she's like, it could be Parker, it could be, it could be Poirot, it could be this person, it could be this person. It's just, even the detectives seem interchangeable in her world somehow. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not brave enough to do that. I have to plot the whole thing out before I get going because the twist is really important to me and I feel like that needs to be the goal of the novel so I need to know how to get there and I couldn't I couldn't wing it not and yet are, anyway. are you a kind of uh, disciplined with yourself about how far you will lead the readers down the wrong lane with a red herring or do you kind of think it doesn't matter I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let them believe this for as long as possible I think you know I mean I think these kind of books that I write are very much like conjuring tricks and so it's all about misdirection and trying to get the audience or the reader to look at the wrong thing in the wrong place while you're trying to, you know, do a little a secret move where they can't see. And so all that stuff is, it's like, a, it's a game you're playing with a reader. And I really enjoy that aspect of it. Because in this one, it's really good because you, you do tease us the whole way through with kind of uh, diary entries and letters from the actual killer. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really fun to try and, you know, I think after the silent patient, people are kind of expecting a, a twist. And I, and I enjoy doing that. So hopefully I pulled it off a second time. I mean, was film, because you, you studied English, but was film your love? As a kid in, in Cyprus, were you just enamoured with the whole idea of Hollywood and movies? I was, but, you know, my first love was, um, was, was Agatha Christie, actually. Because, you know, I grew up reading thrillers on the beach and Agatha Christie was the first adult you know, novel that I, I ever read. And I discovered her one summer when I was like 13. And I just 
devoured all of her books that summer sitting on the beach reading them and um that summer then I just thought one day if I ever write a book it has to be a kind of detective story like this book so I think my fate was kind of sealed at that point uh, but yet you took this big diversion before you got the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, did you did you not think of trying? Because it's so much easier to write a book than than get a film made. Did you not think of, of trying the book before you packed your rucksack and headed off to Hollywood? It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I'm just. I think I really love movies and I love being around people and I love being on a film set and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's ironic that I ended up being a solitary novelist. You know, I think I was trying to avoid that for as long as I could and then finally gave into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting career and I learned a lot in Hollywood. Um, mainly that I was should not be writing screenplays, I think. But but I don't. I mean, I don't think people understand though the horror of being a screenwriter. That actually, <laughs> it, well, you know what I mean. In that, in horror the is most, a good word. Yeah. Well, in the most screenwriters, your stuff you're either optioned or it's in development. Or that, but the, I mean, the fact that you got three films made is yeah. miraculous. That, that yeah. already makes you hugely successful. Well, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And then you're actually on a film set and then it gets much, much worse, I think, because um, you're the least important person on a film set when you're a screenwriter. And so often something that you've been, you know, revised, rewriting and revising for five years is, is rewritten in 15 seconds by somebody else without your knowledge or your permission or your participation even. Um, and it kept happening to me. and It was so heartbreaking. And so I just thought, OK, before I quit, I have to just try and write something where it's just me and a laptop and, and I'm in charge for once. Um, you know, the only way that I could do that was with a novel, really. And very quickly, Sharna in Basingstoke was just, you know, if you're that interested in film, were you never tempted to go in front of the camera? Were you never tempted uh, by acting? I started acting, but I was a horrible actor. Oh, my oh. God. Uh, yeah, I, I started. On... <laughs> you're bad at so many things, Alex. <laughs> I know. Finally, I found something that I'm not too horrible at, um, which is nice. But, you know, I, I think it's... um. I think it's a process. I think all writers are, are, are not born, but they're made through your life and your experiences. And this is sort of where I ended up. But of course, now your your life has come full circle because the silent patient and presumably the maidens as well. But the silent patient certainly has been optioned. Is it is it in production or are they, is it? Yeah, there was a real bittersweet irony to that because there was a, a bidding war in Hollywood for it, and suddenly all these producers who I'd been trying to meet and failing to meet for twenty years managed to get hold of my mobile phone number and were calling me in London at like eleven o'clock at night trying to get me to sign with them, and I felt so sad. I felt so sad, but happy. Um, and I'm, yeah, I, you know, we have a director and a, and a writer attached. I I'm, can't really talk much more about it than that. But I'm not, you know, I'm not really involved um, deliberately. I'm not even going to read the screenplay because I know from bitter experience that the screenplay never resembles the finished film. So I'd rather just approach it like a fan and just sit in the cinema with a big bag of popcorn and just watch it when it comes out. Good idea. I mean, because, you know, you've you've done the thing. You know you don't like it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Step away. Step away. Yeah, that's and, good um, advice. Thank you. Well, listen, congratulations on, on the uh, success of The Silent Patient and I'm sure the success of The Maidens. The Maidens is out now in hardback, audiobook and ebook. Alex Michaelidis, thank you so much for joining us. Take care of yourself, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. All right, take care. Coming up, Claire McIntosh has the next page turner for your book list with her thriller Hostage. But first, Grace Dent fills us in on a life of food in her memoir, Hungry. Hello, Grace. Good morning. How are you? I'm all the better for talking to you. That's all I know. That's (laughs) all I know. I want you to know that for this time on a Sunday morning, I have got a full face of makeup here. Look at this. (laughs) I've got the flicky flicky eyelashes and I've got uh, basically the full Grace Dent is here to meet you. It is uh, much appreciated. <laughs> much appreciated. Uh, Grace, thank you so much for this book. It is such oh. a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. It mm. is is funny and touching. It's it's. Uh, you must be very proud of it is what I suppose I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I am very proud of it. It was really, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny, but yeah, it, you know, you go on a journey. You kind Ooh, of go on a journey. Yeah. You go on a journey from how I was uh, a little girl in Curragh and Carlisle living on uh, Finder's Crispy Pancakes and Butterscotch Angel Delight and uh, that, and kind of going through to the first big supermarkets turning up in Carlisle and how they changed my life and uh, how I ended up on MasterChef. So it's kind of a memoir, but yeah, a memoir through the beauty of food, snacky food. So yeah, uh, Jessie, we go deep. You know? Jesse Ware, Jesse Ware swears these are called food wars. Have oh. you heard that? You see... I love Jessie, right? <laughs> and I would normally support her on most things, but no, I am no, gonna, she hates it. She hates the word. I'm going to she... push back hard against food. Well, that's not a word, is it? 
<laughs> um, it doesn't sound like one, but, but but there is but this is a thing. I, I guess um, Nigel Slater started it, didn't he, with toast? I was going to say stop trying to make food war a thing. That's yeah. the thing you've got to stop. <laughs> uh, yeah, Nigel did start it, and uh, yeah, it's it's that. Well, look, when you are often looking into your past and trying to remember things, it can be very difficult to pin down specific memories. But then somebody passes you a sweet or a chocolate bar, or yeah. shows you a picture of a chocolate wrapper, or something like that from the 70s and suddenly those memories come flooding back and I think that obviously food lets you locate things that are hidden in your brain so yeah food work got okay I'm gonna say it no it's, no it's, no no we I are mean, in, a lot, in a lot of ways it's a food war Graham <laughs> one of the best food wars I've read um, so one of the things I really related to was that idea of you know wanting to get out escaping yeah. you saw the bright lights and it's interesting how media mm. that that general catch-all term media yes is an escape for people because it it although there are lots of kind of white posh people mm. in, in in the media it also yeah. seems a bit demographic doesn't it well look i think that you know i wasn't brought up in an academic household we weren't it wasn't a house full of books or ambition to go you know go far and do things however i always say i was brought up by media. I was brought up by pop culture. They were the things that gave me the impetus, like that little spark. You know, you see Joanne on the Human League looking glamorous on top of the pops. And, you know, the girl, the women on Coronation Street or Janet Street Porter, I loved when I was a little girl. And you see these people in media and you think... I could do that. That's the way. That's the way. I was a massive fan of Polly Yates. And I used to look at her on the tube and go, you know, there's a job there where you can go to London. And you can, <laughs> you can meet Duran Duran and you can hang around and you can write books. And you can do a little bit of this, this and a little bit of that. You know what it's like. I think we both do that a bit. Well, no, you no do. exactly. Because when you're a kid watching it, it appears to be skill-free. Yes. So you just think, oh, they just have, they just, they're just chatty. I it's can do just, that. I can do that. I can talk. I can talk and I can, I can write. I always thought from an early age that I was just very good at, uh, at telling a story and recounting what had happened the night before, you know. And I thought there's a, there's a, there's definitely a job there for me for someone that could, you just make people laugh and make people happy. And tell the truth, tell the truth. That's the thing. It's all about that, isn't it? Just kind of being able to say the thing that other people are thinking. And I love the... I will get to Mary Claire in a second. What I'm blanking on the name of where you worked before Mary Claire was a chat. Oh, gosh, yes. I was. I was at Chat Magazine. Yeah. I was at Chat Magazine and I. It, it's funny to write... When I was writing Hungry, I did kind of suddenly reveal that because it was something I didn't talk about for years. I always said, oh, yes, I started at Mary Claire Magazine and I absolutely didn't. I was the person opening that big bag of uh, readers' letters every day. There used to be, I don't know if it's still there, a coupon in the back and it said, if you have had a real life thing happen to you, <laughs> write in, get a hundred quid. And it was just a big bag of gossip, you know. <laughs> it was just, and they were like, oh, I hope you don't mind doing the mail. I was like, no, pulling up a chair every morning. It was like, my terrible tattoo, you know. And it's like, <laughs> you know, that kind of mi- misery sells. And then obviously having to ring these people, you know, ring them and try and get them to be in the magazine. I loved it. There's a little bit of me that's always going to be chat. But you were really good at it as well. Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm good at talking to people. Yeah. You know, these, I mean, it doesn't matter how far I try to run away from where I'm actually from. And I think I put on a good show when you see me kind of storming into MasterChef and all my diamonds and finery. But really, there's just a, there's a lot of Coronation Street in there. <laughs> there's a lot of Bet. There's a lot of Bet Lynch. There's a lot of Elsie Tanner. So... You know, no matter where I go, I am still kind of that person. And I love being a chat, you know, because cause that's, it was for that type of person. But also, These it, are my people. But isn't it interesting how food, food remains so class-based in a way, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, it always will be. I mean, may, I mean merely because, mainly rather, because of the, the amount of money it costs to eat somewhere wonderful or even yeah. even just 
mediocre. I mean, I always say it's gasps when I'm talking about this. It's very, very easy to spend £250 on dinner. And people say, oh, they get angry right away. But I know that when I look through all my receipts, when you're kind of taking them to the accountant, it's £250. And this is to eat in places that are kind of maybe not even that good. So, yeah, of course, for millions and millions of people listening to this, no wonder they love well, as my family did, the Toby, the Toby Inn or Weatherspoons or places like that. So, you know, it's yeah, it's very class based. And uh, and I hope that in what I do, I honour the happiness that cheaper food brings you. Because, you know, I always I say in the book that, you know, I go to these wonderful places. I spend all my time with my diary full of these, you know, 15 course tasting menus, which is essentially kidnap, you know, you're <laughs> for so long. <laughs> but the happiest times that you've ever had sometimes is it's that sandwich you cobble together from the crust of the loaf when you go in at the end of the day isn't it and you kind of just lie down and you know there's naughty things that we don't like to tell people like eating beans out the tin or eating (laughs) macaroni cheese out the tin or this is a I'm doing um uh, I've got a new podcast at the moment which is talking exactly about that it kind of links into the book so comfort eating is about that it's those it it talking to celebrities about what do they actually eat you know when they're interviewed for magazines of course they go yeah. oh well I have a wonderful time at the Ritz and if I have a if I have a day off I always go to the Wolsey or whatever posh place it is and these places are wonderful but they very rarely say it's like Rafe Spall that kind of made me like the dirtiest cheese and pickle sandwich <laughs> you know what I mean? like just kind of and this is not you know cathedral city and a lot of kind of a lot of butter and it's that kind of thing we had russell t davis on the other day and he said he just made me a load of boiled rice with butter in it <laughs> that, said, sounds quite, that sounds kind of lovely he gave yeah. it he gave it the, the name butter pepper rice <laughs> But it's kind of, you know, these are the things that actually make people happy and unlock memories to the past. So I'm here for it. The heart of the book is really your parents, your relationship with your parents. And you write so movingly about your your dad and, and his memory loss. And I wondered, you know, there's a lot about how music unlocks memories. Does food unlock memories or is that uh, is that fanciful thinking? No, it absolutely does unlock memories. It re- I mean, you know, I always say even just things like the purple of, you know, dairy milk, if you just look at that sometimes, I look at that and it just unlocks memories of, you know, Easter in my house and getting like, you know, Easter eggs and not being able to not being able to touch them for days beforehand because we had to save them or, you know, the the selection boxes at Christmas. And I don't know, I think it does. It's just it's the tiny, very specific tastes that, that, you know, that just I think they just get into the parts of the brain that even a a really good serious think can't unlodge, you know. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And have you been able to introduce any of your fancy London food ways uh, back home Um, or or is it a very conservative kitchen? Well, um, what I found in the end was that, you know, although I did, I I was determined to, to drag my family up to my lofty media heights. One, they didn't want it. And two, they just found me a bit annoying. I know, I know the thing is, I mean, I'm joking, but at the same time, I think that it's, you know, you do sometimes think, oh, maybe my family would love to come to this, you know, swanky media hangout and they get there and they just look at the price of the drinks and go what we would rather have this money to just do the things we like grace thank you very much (laughs) and i think that's good because i've always said i'm still waiting for them to all treat me like the star that i think i am in my own head and they they resolutely refuse to it is funny when your parents visit London, they do rip the curtain back, don't yes. they? And you gotta go, Oh, oh it's oh it's just it's just a bar, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's just completely. a really expensive bar. And then yeah. you're walking around where you're from and then kind of pointing out that what you could have had if you were back home. It's like <laughs> <laughs> look what you could own. So yeah, but I think that's healthy. It is healthy. You can you have to have your family have to always know who you are and remind you who you are i think if you don't have that sometimes you're lost and here's the thing i'm just wondering as a restaurant critic now because 
that industry is struggling so much. Mm. Are you being incredibly kind to every restaurant you go to now? Um, well, I have been until recently. Uh-oh. And I, uh, <laughs> what I found was uh, it was the, the I, was, I was being incredibly, because you're absolutely right, things are in a bit of a dire mess at the moment in lots of different ways, whether it's staffing and supplies and, and everything. You know, we, we all know the horribleness that's gone on. But I can only be nice for so long. And it was starting to give me a migraine because it was all <laughs> beginning to... <laughs> it's, like, it's that feeling um, time and time again of going out and it not being very nice. So I did give a particularly stinging review at the weekend. And I do feel like a boil has been lanced somewhat. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a year of being nice. Look at me, look at my face. I'm not predisposed that look as a you know I'm not the first person to notice I look like Fenella the Kettle Witch and all of that all of that meanness has to go somewhere I could and I just I think as the reviews went on just kind of going I'm just so happy to be out the house was actually beginning to look a little bit mad so I was I was honest but look um, I do know that people are having a hard time and I'll try and be as nice as I can yeah, but yeah, I, I know, yes, yes. But we'll just, look, we'll, you know, yeah. this is it. People are still looking to that column and then going out. And, you know, I said how easy it is to spend £200 in a restaurant. And I, I, I don't want people to be ripped off, you know, and that's who I write for. I write for just people that are going out for dinner. I don't write to be friends with chefs or, you know, friends with the... PRs of big restaurants because you know that that way uh, that you know that's not a very satisfying way to live I write so people no. don't get ripped <laughs> off you know then, then you've got to hang out with them yeah uh, yeah <laughs> exactly um, never hang out with chefs you should never ever hang out with chefs because after they finish drinking at a pub they also always know a lock-in and then after that you can just end up back at their actual restaurant so <laughs> it's it's always a bit of a feral evening so you should always avoid chefs it's a particular person <laughs> personality type isn't it It really is look you know i know a lot of chefs and um they are they're that you know i think that some of them should get more fresh air but it's not it's not a job that lends itself to fresh air is it you know you're kind no. of you're stuck in in all, you know, if you're a windowless room with 15 people calling you you know treating you like a, a god and and they do become kind of masters of their own fiefdoms and then and that's why it's very hard you know when they get off sh- you know shift at the end of the night and have a, one beer and then sit and look at social media and i've said something mean about their restaurant and then they're just so furious you know and uh, but this is why i always say chefs shouldn't have social media uh, hungry, hungry is Grace Dent's book. It's oh. out now. I won't let you waste your face. Uh, go use it in the world. I'm just going to go out and just be beautiful outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right, darling. Lovely, lovely, lovely to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. Take care, Grace. <laughs> Bye. Bye. It is time for my second guest of the day. Uh, this woman is a multi-award-winning Sunday Times best-selling author and international sensation. There, I've said it. It's Claire McIntosh. Hello, Claire. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm really well. I love being an international sensation. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I've said it, so it's true. It's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you bring us such a great new book, Hostage. So uh, because of your police background, uh, you know, you imagine there'll be a lot of police procedural, but obviously there's police in this book, but that's not the focus. Uh, how much uh, can you tell us about the story before there are spoilers? It's always really hard, isn't it, to talk about crime novels. You know this um, because so much of what makes them work and what makes them them hopefully brilliant are are all the surprises and the twists. But this is uh, a locked room thriller set on a non-stop 20-hour flight from London to Sydney. So the premise of it is that flight attendant Mina is on this flight. She's left her husband, her five-year-old daughter at home. And while she's on the flight, she realises that somebody on that plane uh, wants her to do something that will put everybody at risk. And she has to make a big decision. Does she save the lives of all the people on that plane or uh, her family waiting at home? Ooh, because you say locked room uh, because it's all on the plane. But actually, there's a lot in her background, a lot in her home life that goes on as well. There is. And I, I'm um, I, I'm really quite obsessed with what goes on behind closed doors. And I think that being a police officer for so long, 
really showed me that life isn't simple. You know, we've all got these backstories. We've all got um, stuff going on in our home life that adds that emotional intensity. And so when I'm writing, I like to cover not just the sort of the the action thriller stuff that's that's happening on the face of it, but also a, a lot of behind the scenes. And actually on this, I thought a lovely treat for you as a writer that you got to do those little kind of vignettes of the passengers. So we got a, got a glimpse inside other people's minds, but you don't have to develop their, their whole story yeah. or their whole background. <gasps> you are so, I feel seen, Graham. It's true. <laughs> These, they're like little little pen pictures. Um, but yes, I don't, I don't really have to know them quite as intimately as, as I do my central characters. Excellent. Now, the other thing that I thought uh, reading this book was, are you worried? Because it's so plausible. What happens in this book is so believable. Are you worried that someone's going to do this? (laughs) Well, I mean, it'd be great publicity, wouldn't it? Um, No, no, uh, no, Claire, no. (laughs) No, it would not. I mean, I want you to sell books. I want you to sell books. Not like that. (laughs) Oh, all right, then. Um, No, I... I don't know. I'm not really worried because I think, you know, there, there are bad people out there and they're all they're already doing what bad people do. And I genuinely don't think that the sort of people that do those sorts of things read my books. At least I hope not anyway. But I'll, let me t- I'll tell you a thing, a thing that happened that, that really, really terrified me and is quite ridiculous now that I think about it. I was sitting on a plane back when, you know, we could sit on planes. So this was February 2020 and I was editing this book and I was writing a particular scene that is on the plane and it's um to do it's not a spoiler to say that there that there is a um a terrorism element uh, to this book and i was writing about terrorism and i was about to take off um to go to dubai and i was slightly nervous anyway because i'm always a bit jittery when i go to the emirates that i might accidentally break a law that i don't <laughs> know exists and end up in prison so i was already a bit on edge and then i wrote this very very sort of high octane terrorist related scene and then suddenly there was a big announcement and they said uh we're terribly sorry everyone's got to get off the plane this plane will not be flying to dubai today and i thought i'd done it i thought that they'd they'd sort of somehow knew what i was writing and i'd brought down the entire flight anyway it was just engine failure so it wasn't that dramatic at all but i genuinely thought that i'd uh, i'd caused this awful security breach yeah because you you, some words would have yeah flagged something terrible on the plane Yikes. Yes, because, I mean, you know what it's like? Your, your search history, if you're a writer, is insane. And, and you're always slightly worried that the FBI have got you on a list because you're constantly searching things like how to, you know, ha- what kind of acid is best for dissolving human bones. <laughs> always the police officer. Uh, so, Claire, where did this idea come from? Did it come fully formed or did bits of it come first? Lots of different places, really. I've, I've had... Um, I keep a notebook with lots of different ideas for books and I've had for several years just a line scribbled in this book which says flight attendant, uh, save save family or save plane. Um, and a lot of what I do in my books is is explore those kind of high concept dilemmas that you can't really imagine yourself having to make but when it's presented to you, you know, you, you've, you've got a, an opinion on it. They're quite good discussion points. So I've had that. And then I was on a long haul flight. I was flying to San Francisco, which um, is quite a long way. Yeah. And I had the, fa- the family with me, which makes it you know, truly horrific in every way. Um, <laughs> and so I was thinking quite a lot about family. Um, and, and I wasn't, you know, we weren't in business class. We didn't have fancy Wi-Fi. It was just, uh, just us and our, our, our no legroom. Um, and I was thinking about how odd it is that in this super connected world that planes are one of the few places where actually you don't know what's going on on the ground and you know you you step off a plane sometimes a whole day later and anything could have happened and so I really loved that idea as a as a setting um and then that combined with locked room mysteries that I love, um, you know, things like uh, the um, murder on the Orient Express. Um, and so what I wanted was a kind of Orient Express meets Con Air kind of, um, you know, exciting uh, thriller in uh, a, a place that you just can't escape. 
And were you able to take lots of tax-deductible flights for this book, or did you just, did you kind of cobble it together from your memory of of long-haul flights? I wish I I would love to so, so actually the flight that this is based on is is hasn't happened yet so it's it's planned it's the 20 hour flight from London to Sydney um so they run the route at the moment from London to Perth uh, and I suppose I could have tried to argue that I really <laughs> needed that trip to Sydney but the bottom line is in normal pre covid times I fly a lot um short and long haul and so you know I've got a lot of a lot of flights to draw on and and like all writers I'm a real people watcher and and so I particularly love that bit on on flights where they close the curtains and all the cabin crew are hanging out in the galley and they're kind of they're not off duty but they sort of are and you you go through the curtain to go to the the bathroom and they've got their their shoes off or they're you know flicking through a magazine or talking about their their boyfriends and I really like that sort of behind the curtain glimpse um so I really wanted to to explore that in the book yeah, I always think I worked in restaurants. At least in restaurants, you can go and hide. In a plane, you're just there. The, the, the people, passengers can find you at any time. It's hellish. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> and they, they've got to be on all the time. And um, and it's such, a, it's such a hard job because, of course, they're, they're so often kind of dismissed as as being waiting staff you know they're they're waitresses in in the air and and they're not you know their their primary function is to keep you safe that they're, they're uh you know uh, as important as a, as a police officer as a you know a paramedic they have so many skills and so i think it's a really interesting job well, hopefully it's never as difficult as you make it in hostage. <laughs> hostage. I very much hope not. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, everybody. Um, but Hostage is out in paperback on Tuesday. Claire McIntosh, a joy to talk to you. Hopefully we'll talk to you on the next one. Hope so. Thanks, Graham. All right. Take care of yourself. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining me for the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast with Waitrose. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning. And don't forget, the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. See you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.